from PRX. Stew. Stew. Dear. Dear. Oh. Oh. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Oh, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you mean, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... The NEA is reaching every state, every community in the United States. Do I cast a 40-year-old and try to make him look 60 and 20? Bogart was not somebody who played romances before this film. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. I'll begin with a full disclosure. Studio 360 has received some grants from the National Endowment for the Arts over the years... And the show has covered lots of projects that wouldn't have happened without the support of the NEA. So I would be very sorry to see it go. But the Federal Arts Endowment has been a perennial target for years of groups on the right, such as the Heritage Foundation. And suddenly that threat is looking less rhetorical and more existential. The Hill is a publication that covers Congress and has reported that the Trump administration wants to eliminate the NEA, as well as its sibling, the National Endowment for the Humanities. Given what we have in Congress, Republican majorities in both the House and Senate, it could happen this time. Dana Joya says the NEA hasn't always been polarizing, and he ought to know. Joya calls himself a moderate Republican and was chair of the NEA under George W. Bush. He is now California's Poet Laureate and a professor at the University of Southern California. Dana, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here. Now, before we get too deep into the weeds, give our listeners a basic brief on on what the NEA is and, and why we need it. The National Endowment for the Arts is the official arts agency of the U.S. government. Uh, its job is to promote the arts and arts education, you know, across the United States. And it's cheap. The The whole budget for the NEA last year was $148 million? Oh, Kurt, it's so... I mean, the, the thing about it is that the NEA is very efficiently run nowadays. It's got a very small staff. Most of the money goes out the door, and it, you know, it goes, you know, either to individual artists in those areas where they still give grants, or it goes to arts groups. And, and for the arts groups... These grants are foundational because it gives them the credibility that these national panels have chosen them as one of the leading groups in the United States. And and that, you know, basically allows them to fundraise more right, effectively. Right. So when people say, oh, it should all be privately supported, this is a way to do that. By 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 giving the federal imprimatur, then they're able to raise money privately. Yes. I mean, so the thing about it is that the NEA does not subsidize the American arts. It doesn't have enough money to subsidize anybody. But what it does do is serve as a catalyst for local groups to raise money in their own community to serve that community in the way that the community wants to be served. And 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 by the way, in terms of the amount, I mean, to you and me, $150 million sounds like a lot of money, but it is – Point zero zero single digit uh, percent of the of federal spending. I mean, it's you're talking about tens of thousands, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, you know, of percentiles. And so, the budget is not really the issue. The fight about the NEA has become symbolic, uh, and we, you know, we need to, uh, in a sense, keep it as a positive 
symbol. Right. You know, the argument that, you know, that I would make, it was that having the arts in your community is not a partisan issue. All Americans understand, you know, the value of arts and education and arts to their local culture and their local economy. And also, let's remind our listeners that for its first 20 years or more of existence, it was a totally bipartisan thing. It was The NEA budget, I I was looking last night, went up tenfold during the Nixon-Ford years. The NEA has actually done better under Republican presidents generally than Democratic presidents. Interesting. I mean, if you go back actually to the the Reagan and Bush era and actually the early Clinton days, the endowment uh, had in terms of current dollars about three times as much as it does now. Their budget would be over $300 million in terms of working dollars. So, you know, there is a a tradition of bipartisan support. And I would say, I mean, at the moment – the NEA is not controversial in a cultural sense. Most people think that what the NEA is doing are valuable programs for the arts and arts education. This is not just, oh, it's a bunch of hundreds of millions of dollars going to Manhattan and Los Angeles. It is in little towns in every state in America. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, I'll give you something that's really quite interesting. Um, the Shakespeare program, which basically brings uh, professional productions of Shakespeare to towns that don't have theater groups – has visited 4,000 towns. Right. I mean, these are small towns. So the, the NEA is reaching every state, uh, every congressional district, right. every community in the United States. So the good thing about saving the NEA right now is that there are no controversies, and we have a tradition of bipartisan support. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be a battle, but it does mean, I think, that on the battlefield, we have the superior ground for the moment. And, and when we talk about controversies, the, the famous controversy, and now – the 30-year-old controversy is this work of art that was a crucifix in a jar of urine. And, oh, my God, that's terrible. We should defund the NEA. The, the thing is, since then, essentially, certainly in this century, I, I don't think that any controversy like that has arisen. So there, there has been no, as you suggest, no no, re, no reason in, in, in a generation for anybody to be angry at the NEA. Those are, and I think that we should only refer to them as the controversies of a previous century. Okay, let's say I'm President Trump and uh, he sees, oh, this guy was a Republican appointee, worked here for seven years, a, a former corporate executive, a serious poet. He's the perfect guy to advise me and I invite you over to the White House or Trump Tower uh, and say, what about this? What, what, what's your argument to him, not to any president, but to President Trump? The presence of arts in schools and the presence of arts in communities makes those communities more economically viable. They become places that are desirable to live in, desirable to locate businesses in, uh, and are desirable to invest in. Uh, This is probably one of the cheapest economic development programs the United States has. Now that's my Trumpian argument. That's not the argument. <laughs> yes, I you know, understand. Uh, you know that I would that I would make to a cultural person. But the the fact is that when you do something that's positive, uh, it tends to be positive in many different right. ways. I mean, the most impressive example of using arts for economic development in the United States is the city of Charleston. Now, if you'd gone to Charleston forty years ago, it was a dying community. The mayor of Charleston talked to the composer, John Carlo Minotti, if you know the opera right, composer. Right, of course. Um, night visitors. So he's a southern mayor bringing in a gay Italian-American opera composer mm-hmm. to uh, re- relocate 
the Spoleto Festival, this little festival. And in the course of 40 years, the presence of this festival has transformed Charleston into the most attractive city in the southern United States. You have uh, galleries, restaurants, you know, a tremendously positive tax base, active commercial zone, and, the, and right. huge local employment. Right. The other good news is that um, Donald Trump does not create the budget. He can suggest a budget <laughs> right. of the United States. Right. Congress does. Yep. So uh, I would urge people not to worry about the president on this, uh, to write their representative. Simply write uh, something of about two or three sentences. Just say, as one of your constituents, I'm very concerned about protecting the budget of the NEA. And and just say, this is the first time I've ever written you because this issue is important to me. I guarantee you that any member of the House who gets 500 individual emails or letters on an issue will begin to change his or her mind. They will act on it. And frankly, we already in uh, uh really have all the votes we need to protect the agency, and the structure of the committees is in our favor. Well, Dana Joy, you have uh, you've cheered me up. You've heartened me. We need, in American culture, to win the battles. We can win a lot of these battles, you know, if we focus on them and do them intelligently, and we will win this battle. Um, Dana, thank you so much for giving uh, me and us so much of your time. It's a pleasure, Kurt. I always, you know, uh, like talking to you. Good. Me too. Uh, I hope to see you before too long and and, and not over some issue of uh, Jeopardy like this. Let our next conversation be about poetry. Oh, yes, indeed. Dana Joya is California's Poet Laureate and was chair of the NEA from 2003 to 2009. Coming up, in that movie a few years ago about J. Edgar Hoover... Leo DiCaprio played the FBI director into his late 70s. He's just got these prosthetic jowls hanging off his face for the second half of the movie, and it's just, you know, we've put men on the moon, but we still can't make convincing jowls. Screenwriter Robert D. Siegel arguing against biopics that go from cradle to grave. That's ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. If there's one kind of movie that Hollywood can't seem to say no to, it is depictions of famous real-life figures, like Ben Kingsley as Mahatma Gandhi. Peaceful, non-violent, non-cooperation. Or Daniel Day-Lewis as Abraham Lincoln. We're stepped out upon the world stage now. Now! With the fate of human dignity in our hands. Or Meryl Streep as Margaret Thatcher. No, no. We will stand on principle. Or we will not stand at all. It does seem like we are maybe right now at peak biopic. And they're not always totally flattering these days, such as Steve Jobs. Or even more so, the new film, The Founder in which Michael Keaton stars as Ray Kroc, the guy who had the vision and the ruthless hucksterism to build the McDonald's empire. That script was written by Robert D. Siegel, who also wrote The Wrestler, the great film that starred Mickey Rourke. 
Robert's with me now to talk about what he has learned about telling a story of a real person in a big Hollywood film and not make it a hagiography. Robert Siegel, welcome. Thank you. Let's start with a clip from the founder. Here's Michael Keaton as Ray Kroc trying to convince the actual McDonald's brothers to go into business with him. A building with a cross on top of it. What is that? It's a gathering place where decent, wholesome people come together and they, they share values protected by that American flag. It could be said that that beautiful building flanked by those arches signifies more or less the same thing. It doesn't just say delicious hamburgers inside. They signify family. It signifies community. It's a place where Americans come together to break bread. I am telling you, McDonald's can be the new American church. Feeding bodies and feeding souls, and it ain't just open on Sundays, boys. That is one of my favorite scenes in your movie. And at this point in the film, we, we still totally love the, the Ray Kroc character. Yeah, yeah. The movie is kind of designed to lower your defenses. You think you're watching kind of a harmless biopic uh, Horatio Alger story about, right. a, about an underdog. With a, with a, f- a funny, roguish, Michael yeah. Keaton-ish type. And then somewhere in the middle of the movie, you don't realize it's happening until it's too late, but you realize that the protagonist has become the bad guy. Yeah. And you're still rooting for him. Right. It's not meant to be either a glorification of the guy or just a straight-up takedown. We right. don't really want to do it that way. It's, it's kind of in the middle because I think there are actually things to admire about him. For sure. Uh, and, and it's interesting. I mean, it shows him being a jerk. Uh, you know, he's not a good husband to his first wife. Uh, he, he, he steals the McDonald's brothers business. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess we know that. Um, it's, it's tough. And, and, and yet I read a review saying, oh, they're too soft on the guy. Yeah. I don't, I disagree with the reviews that didn't like the film. Um, <laughs> I think, I think there are admirable qualities about him. Yes. He was a visionary of yeah. a sort. And, and in his defense, he's pretty much like every other business mogul who's ever lived. You know, if you were to do a biopic about Henry Ford or the Iacocca. Henry Ford has even, Uh, you know, made anti-Semitism legit in America for a decade. Yeah, I mean, they're all kind of bastards. Right. Uh, So you start with Ray Kroc's story, and there are, I presume, biographies and and things. Um, So you take the—here's the real points of his life, and and then do you say, okay, I get it. Now I'm just going to write a screenplay I like, and it'll have some loose relationship to the guy, or how do you... Well, you sort of have to split the difference. You can't be too slavish to it, or you wind up with such sort of uh, an, uh, a Wikipedia entry come to life. Yeah. And um, you don't want to go too far afield. I'm always disappointed when I, when I see a movie that's based on a true story, and then I find out that it's barely based on a true story. Yeah. It, kind of, it kind of ruins it for me. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I try not to... Um, of course, you're going to take artistic license right. here and there. But like that but, scene we heard, presumably that's just out of your head. No, it's it's funny that that's the clip you uh, you chose. Um, it, it would be incredibly ironic and hypocritical if I didn't point this out. That scene was written by my wife. Um, the, the okay, great, out of somebody's head. It's yeah, fiction. Yeah, but I, 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 I'm tempted to take credit for it because it's awesome, but that was her idea, the whole churches and, and yeah. uh Ray Kroc wouldn't have done that. He wouldn't have given his wife credit. I mean, imagine if I was on an interview and I was taking credit for something my wife yeah. suggested to me. Well, good uh, for her. I'd be, I'd be no better than him. That's true. So thank you, Jen. Um, so so this is how close I need to stick to the yeah, facts or how the, far I can get away, and that's the line you try to walk? I think it's easy to get lost in research. I try not to do that. You know, you read a couple of books. Uh, you, you educate yourself on the basic facts, and then hopefully 
a really interesting character that's like the character, the guy, but an even more interesting version of the guy, but still true to the guy, you know, yeah. uh, kind of springs from your imagination. Right. So what kinds of biopics do you like to watch or, or, or dislike? For me, the distinction tends to be, is this someone whose face you know? Like, are they so famous that you know who this... Right. So, like Steve Jobs. Yeah, Steve Jobs or Johnny Cash or, right. or, or Ray Charles or right. those, like those biopics. Right. I generally don't like them. One, because I'm, I'm super aware that I'm watching an actor. And then, and then the other factor with those biopics is um, typically the more famous the person is, the more an estate is involved. Right. Uh, so there's some, you know, um, don't show my, you know, don't show my beloved grandfather doing crack and beating my grandmother. Right. And you get that with, you know, uh, a James Brown movie or something like that. Whereas, you know, I, I find a, a biopic about somebody like Ray Kroc, you don't bring. You don't even know really what he looks like. So right. if Michael Keaton doesn't exactly look like him or sound like him, it doesn't really right. ruin the experience for me. I think most people like to fool themselves, you know, and say, this is real. I'm watching something that that is real. And I can't do that when I'm watching Miles Teller play Elvis Presley. Right. Or, right. Uh, now, in terms of whether doing a biographical film, you do like a short period of time or a whole lot of years, uh, the, the founder takes place over – it's it's – concentrated on a few years but it it goes a while yeah the trend now the the way it used to be it was kind of cradle to grave right gandhi and amadeus but then you start getting into well first you start looking like all the other biopics that came before you and then you start getting into prosthetics and how do i yeah do i cast a 40 year old and you know try to make him look 60 and 20 it's very difficult i thought it worked in the case of gandhi i don't really know how but um and, I'm a, and Mozart didn't but live like, very But like, did long. you see the J. Edgar Hoover one with uh, DiCaprio? I did not. He, he played J. Edgar Hoover and he's just got these prosthetic jowls hanging off his face for the second half of the movie. And it's just, I mean, um, yeah. we've put, you know, we've put men on the moon, but we still can't make convincing jowls. Yeah. Uh, there's something about the about human skin that yeah. still has not, they just can't do it. The trend now is more like pick, pick either a specific kind of formative period in the person's life or often the really good ones focus on a day. Well, like this film Jackie about Jacqueline Kennedy yeah. is, a, is a week. Yeah, it goes from the assassinate. Yeah. So now having, having uh, being at least partly a go-to guy for writing biopics, do you have like in like a, a drawer full of ideas? Of, for biopics? Uh-huh. My, my own personal dream project biopic is, uh, is Robert Moses. I think Robert Moses would make an incredible, either a movie or probably more a, a miniseries. Yes. I guess you could say he was probably the most powerful individual in New York City in the 20th century. You could certainly make the case. It, it would be almost impossible to take a 10-minute walk in New York City without passing or walking over some a, a bridge or a tunnel, you know, or an overpass or a highway or a park. I mean, everything in New York City has his fingerprints on it. Who would play uh, – anybody could play him, right? Because nobody well, knows what he looks like. Um, well, you want – well, he's – right. Well, that, that, that definitely helps. You, know, um, you were going to say he's Jewish. He's Jew. I was. <laughs> you read I, my I, – I saw your mouth move in that form. I was moving in a <laughs> Semitic direction. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's Jewish. Um, so, you know, that narrows. If you're going to only look for – he was a kind of a big, burly – large frame kind of man so if you want to if you want a brawny jew that kind of limits your casting pool to liev schreiber <laughs> i was gonna say Liev uh, schreiber. you know so uh 
Back to the founder. Uh, so far, just by yes. a quick Google search, I discovered it, that in Variety, uh, The Guardian, The New Yorker, and The New York Times, uh, probably others, all uh-huh. refer to the founder as this parable for the Trump era. Yeah, <laughs> um, um, which which I get. He's a salesman and a and and a jerk and uh, cheats on his wife and 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 screws his business partner. So I get I get what they're saying. But I wrote it three years well, ago. Well, that's the thing. I mean, he wasn't in your head in any no. sense, was he? No, no, no. This was not a parable about <laughs> the guy who yeah. hosts The Apprentice. Um, I don't I don't know how that works. I mean, it's kind of chicken and the egg. I, I, I most I tend to chalk up most things to just the randomness of the universe rather than a, oh it must be in the air it must be in yeah, my subconscious yeah. we yeah, must yeah. all be thinking about a man like trump no 3 years ago i wasn't really i wasn't really thinking about trump but now of course it's yeah somebody declared it the first something in of trumpian cinema did you see it i mean like I, a 6 months ago a year ago did you go hmm this could be good for me i made the yes and i made a little like money gesture <laughs> with my fingers um no i I really wish this movie were completely irrelevant. I'd right. rather I'd rather uh, have a sane world. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Donald Trump, uh, uh, the founder was not the first time you've been uh, approached uh, to write a biopic, and not oh. even including the wrestler. I just learned that Morgan Neville, uh, the director who won an Oscar for uh, Twenty Feet from Stardom, approached you to write another based on a true story film. Yes, I was talk uh, about that. Yeah, there was. Uh, they wanted to do a biopic about the two guys who founded Spy Magazine. Um, which were Graydon Carter and uh, what was his name? He was a guy from I think Nebraska. The guy nobody really remembers. Kinda, not yeah, a, yeah, uh, kind of like the the Andrew Ridgely to uh, <laughs> George Michael. You follow? Um, no, that was that was you, Kurt. Yes, it was. I was approached to write a biopic about you and uh, and Graydon. Yeah, um, which which literally until and, we we were just booking this guy who wrote the founder to on the show to talk about the founder and biopics. I had no idea. A, did you know there was? No, nor did I know there was. I a was told. Attack. I think I was told I would have access to you. Well, you would. Now and you're I getting could, it. Uh, pick your brain. You had great stories. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it's again, a two-hander. I, what does that mean? Two-hander. That's Hollywood jargon for um, you know, it's like a buddy pick. Oh, two, right, right. Two, yeah, no, it's a buddy pick. Right. You know, two star, two definitely, two actors, definitely two leads. Um, and, uh, you're I, the the Midwestern, right? Farm boy, you know, wet behind the ears, yeah. comes to the big city. So you just go for the untrue cliches. I well, guess, your brain you know. first. I mean, when you're pitch stuff, your brain, yeah, 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 yeah. or at least mine, immediately goes straight to the most cliched version possible. <laughs> yes, yes. Because you kind of want it to be a little cliched so that people know. Sure. And then you have to pull back from the cliché. Yeah. And now, by the way, our nemesis is President of the United States. This short-fingered vulgarian. So, like, shouldn't it get made now? I think that, I think that would help. They're probably going to, yeah. You think it would be a good movie? I'm telling you. I mean, people 30 years ago, uh, being in a big, funny fight with Donald Trump sounds good to me. Yeah. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, who do you think? You? I don't know. I, I, I yeah. Just, maybe. It's not it could be. crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I can see it. The nose. You have yeah, the, I, I see yeah, the nose. Yeah. Uh, Robert E. Ziegel, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. That was really fun. <laughs> The Founder, written by Robert D. Siegel, is in theaters now. No matter how passionate they are or how much talent they may have, it is rare for artists to be able to make a living doing the things they love. 
So that guy steam cleaning your carpets could also be writing a novel about, I don't know, centipedes. Or the woman who gave you an eye exam yesterday might also be an accomplished cabaret singer. You really never know. So to take a peek at the double lives that a lot of artists are obliged to lead, we have started a new series called Day Jobs. My name is Courtney McGinnis. I'm a stand-up comedian, and my day job is designing women's underwear. (laughs) I've always been the weird artsy kid forever. I think I was maybe 11 or 12, and I was like, I'm going to move to New York City. And so that was like always my main goal is to get to New York, because I felt like if I lived here, kind of, I mean, you know, that's why everyone moves here. Anything's possible. I studied at the Fashion Institute of Technology, and then I started working for Oscar de la Renta lingerie, and then I was at Victoria's Secret, and now I am working at a lingerie and sleepwear brand, which uh, shall not be mentioned, uh, so I don't get in trouble. We're in the old Tiffany's building, so it's very chic, very glamorous. Big windows, big working tables, and uh, a lot of fake flowers. So we have string thong, string bikini, boy brief, boy short. We have color names, preppy pink, balmy teal, toboggan brown, loca verde, (laughs) walnut tree. Uh, You really feel sexy in a walnut undie. Target age range is like 18 to 24, so it's like a young women's brand. Very girly, very sweet. Uh, She's a little more innocent for lingerie. She's a good girl. Maybe not the girls who design it, but (laughs) but definitely our customer. (laughs) Um, We don't put a bow on it if we can't afford a bow. Can't afford, which happens sometimes. But like, (laughs) honestly, like our price point is so low that it makes a big difference. So just get the bow. Take the bow off. Get it out of here. When my colleagues find out I do stand up, they want to know like, do you do it on the weekends or? And when I feel like when I say I do it every. Single day, uh, people are usually like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) I am tired 100% of the time. The conversations and relationships I have here are like more intimate and more sensitive. And then I go over and I'm just in an open mic with a bunch of boys. My real personality comes out. I like anybody's does, right? When you leave work, you're finally like, ah, I can be me. (laughs) So we are sitting in uh, Eastville Comedy Club in Manhattan. Uh, This is the place where I did my first open mic four years and one month ago. All right, this next person comes to the stage. The open mics are notoriously tough here, so you probably hear a lot of silence after my punchlines. Thank you. I think actually it is 
pretty similar the way I write jokes and come up with ideas for underwear. <laughs> I smell a new bit. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's, it's very strange. But, I mean, they are kind of the same ideas. And, like, as you go through the season designing something, it evolves and changes the same way when you start telling a joke in six months. If you're still telling that joke, it's not going to be the same, whether you consciously do it or not. We moved in together. That was, whew, I, uh, that was good. It was really uncomfortable when he found out I didn't actually sleepwalk. I was just going through his stuff. Uh, I love weirdos. I love weird, weird, weird. I love Maria Bamford. Is Veronica go swing dancing? Are people still doing that? <laughs> the war is over. There's plenty of pantyhose for everyone. Yeah, I like silly. I like uh, I love an act out. You have to be willing to humiliate yourself in order to better yourself. Yeah, I mean, you just have to keep pushing it's you just got to keep going you have to really want to do it because it sucks most of the time um i've been reading a lot about ghosts lately i read this one thing that it was like ghosts are like very like sad and lonely and they're just craving attention and i immediately was like have i been dead this whole time (laughs) i feel like my life is in two parts like before i started doing stand-up and once i started doing stand-up it's the first time I've been like honestly confident in myself as a person and not just whatever my looks or the way I dress or something superficial. It makes me love myself and the fact that I push myself to do something like that that's so vulnerable, <laughs> it's uh, pretty crazy. That's the underwear designer and comedian, Courtney McGinnis. So what's the thing you do to pay your bills while you work on your masterpiece? Maybe you're a flight attendant writing a musical about the Meech Lake Accord. Whatever, tell us about it in an email or a voice memo, which you can send to studio360 at wnyc.org. Still ahead... The iconic movie about fleeing and fighting the Nazis, starring actors who fled and fought the Nazis. Without all of those people who'd really experienced it yeah. firsthand, it just wouldn't have that kind of pattern of, of authenticity, yeah. which a, an otherwise Hollywood-confected studio picture you know, couldn't possibly have. It just it, it wouldn't be possible. The remarkable casting of Casablanca and why the movie is still as relevant as ever on its 75th anniversary. That's ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Before there was this... This looks like the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Or this... Say it again, Sam. Say the alphabet. Hey. Or this. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not on it with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. It's beautiful. It's from Casablanca. I waited my whole life to say it. There was this. 
You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. Casablanca was released 75 years ago this year. And it's such an iconic film that we forget how urgent and timely it was when it first came out. Casablanca came out during the first full year of the Americans fighting in World War II, 1942, and the year that the Allies invaded North Africa, which the Nazis occupied, including Casablanca, the city in Morocco. My guests today are the film scholar Noah Eisenberg, who's got a new book called We'll Always Have Casablanca, and Karina Longworth, host of the terrific podcast You Must Remember This, which is a very juicy and very intelligent examination of old Hollywood. Noah and Karina, welcome to Studio 360. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Karina, um, I, I listened to your podcast episode on Humphrey Burger. Uh, first of all, I, I, I had forgotten that he's a preppy New Yorker, which is so out of uh, sync with what one thinks of Humphrey Bogart being. But he was a, he was very much a late bloomer, right? Yeah. I mean, he didn't really become a movie star until his late 30s, early 40s. And it took him a while to develop a persona in Hollywood. I mean, there were a couple of key films. Uh, he played a gangster in The Petrified Forest in 1936. First time any one of you makes a wrong move, I'm going to kill a whole lot of you. That was sort of him, you know, stepping his toe in the water of this thing that he'd become known for, which was an anti-hero, um, somebody who's technically doing bad things but is right. so charismatic that the audience loves him. Right. And then he really took that to a new level in 1940 with the film High Sierra where he plays another, you know, no good guy. But you sort of root for him to win, you know, the heart of the lady in that movie. Right. Noah, was, was that a new thing? I mean, now, you know, we have uh, – a, a golden age of television devoted to that kind of anti-hero sure. person. But in 1940, 1942, was this the bad guy who you like anyway? Was that a kind of new figure in, in, in cinema? I don't know whether it was necessarily new, but, 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 but Humphrey Bogart definitely brought it to a new place. Yeah. And by the time he gets to Casablanca, he really makes this extraordinary transformation, something about which, and Karina, you talk about it in your podcast uh, as well, about being kind of unsettled by, I think, this transformation, not really feeling totally comfortable with suddenly being thought of as, 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 as a you know, romantic lead. And, and he, he didn't know whether he could pull this off. Just one thing I want to add about the sort of transformation of his persona. You know, in between High Sierra and Casablanca, you do have the Maltese Falcon, which is right. um, Bogart's first movie with John Huston. And you see him kind of becoming this John Huston man in that movie. You know, he's hard drinking and he's hedonistic and he knows how to use a gun and he might even like using a gun. But he also has this code of of ethics that he lives by. Right. Um, but women aren't necessarily central to the Houston man. Um, right, right. And then with Casablanca, you see him bringing all of those qualities into this space where he's a man who, you know, has this romantic past and and the romantic past, like, comes back into the present. Right. Uh, what about uh, Ilsa, uh, Ingrid Bergman, of course, um, who is, is Rick's ex-lover and with whom he'll always have Paris? This was... Not quite introducing her, but she was brand new to America, right? Yeah. Um, so she had been brought over from Sweden by David O. Selznick, who was a producer and a studio mogul. But when he saw her in person for the first time, he was disappointed. Um, he, he, she wasn't as glamorous as he wanted her to be. And so he told her he was going to give her the full makeover, and she refused. She said, um, either take what I am or leave it. Huh. And so then he came up with this idea of like, okay, so this one, we're going to sell her as a natural. She's a natural beauty. 
Um, and, you know, I mean, when we see her now in a film like Casablanca, she seems so ethereal and exotic compared uh-huh. to maybe what we're used to. But in the context of Hollywood in 1942, she was, you know, relatively pared back in terms of glamour. And, That's interesting. And there was this, there was this idea that, like, she was authentic and natural. Meaning meaning not Veronica Lake or something. Yeah, not, not, not so heavily made up and not right. – she no, hadn't no been eyebrows, molded right? by Hollywood. Right. And, and so uh, Bogart and, and, and Bergman uh, were not Warner Brothers' first choices for these – for Ilsa and Rick? Well, I mean, there was plenty of studio-generated gossip. You have that 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 you know that planted piece about uh, Reagan and Anne Sheridan yes. co-starring. I want I, I want that alternative <laughs> universe where Ronald Reagan is Rick Blaine. Right? Can you imagine what would have happened? <laughs> uh, the chemistry or lack of chemistry between um, Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart. What was the story there? Well, I mean, that's one of the sort of magical things about this movie that it works out so that it becomes one of the great romantic films of all time because they didn't like each other um, and they had a really hard time playing the romance. I mean, we, we spoke earlier about how Bogart was not somebody who played romances before this film. He was also in a very messy, violent marriage at the time. This was before he he met Lauren Bacall. Um, so he was unhappy in his personal life. And, you know, um, Bergman was very frustrated by the different changes in the script. You know, the movie was being rewritten and rewritten as they were making it. And, you know, they were trying to play these romantic scenes and not knowing who she'd end up with in the end. Huh. One of the people in this great big cast I'm interested in is the piano player, Sam, uh, played by Arthur Dooley Wilson. And Noah, reading your book, I was surprised to find he, he wasn't actually playing the piano in the film, um, although he was singing. Here, here he is with Bogart. Boss, let's get out of here. No, sir. I'm waiting for a lady. Please, boss, let's go. Ain't nothing but trouble for you here. Coming back, I know she's coming back. We'll take the car and drive all night. We'll get drunk. We'll go fishing and stay away until she's gone. Get up and go home, will you? No, sir. I'm staying right here. Now, Sam and Rick obviously have this very close uh, buddy relationship. And I was trying to think if I could think of any other uh, comparable relationship between a black man and a white man in the movies uh, at the time. Were there? I don't know of any single uh, uh, performance by an African-American actor of the 1940s that is as fully developed as was Dooley Wilson playing Sam in Casablanca. And I read the review of the film in the Amsterdam News, in one of the only you know, black-owned newspapers in New York City, where the, the, the critic really extols the, the, the advances made by Dooley Wilson in his portrayal of Sam. You know, he's not another Pullman porter. He's not a cook. He's, he's not a valet. And no, nor, is he, nor is it comedy. Right, right, right. Exactly. It's exactly, a dramatic exactly, role. Exactly. He never was able to land another role that would give him that kind of depth and that kind of complexity. Um, uh, on the poster for Casablanca, Bogart and Bergman are there, of course. But um, this was an amazing ensemble cast. And what I had never thought about or realized is, is how many of these people had fled the Nazis. You despise me, don't you? Although I gave you any thought, I probably would. But why? <laughs> oh, you object to the kind of business I do, huh? But think of all those poor refugees who must rot in this place if I didn't help them. Well, that's not so bad through ways of my own. I provide them with exit visas. For a price, Ugarty. For a price. That was, of course, Peter Lorre playing the skeevy 
Ugarte. Uh, Noah, talk about him. Talk about Peter Lorre and, and how he got to the United States and what was going on with him. Yeah, Peter Lorre had fled the Nazi uh, uh, regime. He, he'd made his breakout uh, performance as the child murderer in Fritz right. Lang's M right. from 1931. And he was, he was a Yes, he had been born uh, in the provinces of Hungary, um, given the name Laszlo Löwenstein, uh, and he ch- changed that name, Goodness, as we all know exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, and 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 he uh, he made his way then to Hollywood. Um, he shacked up with a young and similarly destitute Billy Wilder. At any rate, he ended up playing a lot of quirky characters. He'd already yes. been marked. He was always sort of ethnically dubious. Think of Joel Cairo <laughs> yes. in the Maltese Falcon and all of his passports yeah. and his accent too. Then there's uh, uh, Victor Laszlo, uh, the. I don't know. Not I don't want to say poor chump, but they, Victor Laszlo, <laughs> the, the the head of uh, the Czech Resistance, uh, who is Ingrid Bergman's Ilsa's uh, husband, uh, played by uh, Paul Henride. I just sometimes wonder if it's worth all this. I mean, what you're fighting for? We might as well question why we breathe. If we stop breathing, we'll die. If we stop fighting our enemies, the world will die. Now, what of it? It'll be out of its misery. You know how you sound, Monsieur Blaine. Like a man who's trying to convince himself of something he doesn't believe in his heart. Now, again, I didn't know Paul Henright, another anti-Nazi activist German, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, he was actually born in Trieste when it was still part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, but he was an activist, and, and, and Karina did a wonderful series on You Must Remember This, on these blacklisted uh, actors and, and, and the different forms of, of, that is of in resistance. The American blacklist in the 1950s. It, 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 exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But Henry was one of the people who marched in, in, in Washington, was very, very outspoken, was very committed. That sort of principled resistance that you see in his portrayal of Victor Laszlo, I think he, he, he carried that with him off, off screen as well. Um, and he brought that kind of principled commitment. That's not what I think audiences at the time were necessarily looking for. Here we are, a year into the war, or the United States being in the war, and, and like what's always interested me in that historical context about this film is he, he is the hero. Victor Laszlo is the hero, and we were all supposed to be heroes then, and that was certainly the, the American propaganda idea, and, and yet he's the minor character, and, and this guy who, you know— doesn't really care and isn't really engaged is the hero. I find that so interesting in the middle of the Great War. Mm. Mm. Well, I think that what's happening there is that, you know, the movie is dramatizing, you know, what is going to happen to a lot of American men and regular Americans who, you know, didn't, certainly up until that point, didn't think that the war in Europe was their problem. Um, But what Casablanca shows is that it's it's everybody's problem, right. you know. I mean, everybody is going to have to sacrifice something, and exactly. you know, even if you don't consider yourself that kind of guy, the war makes us all that kind of yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. And the other stuff doesn't amount to a hill of beans, is how <laughs> I'd put it. Um, <laughs> very, very well, very, very original. Um, and and there again, we could just go on about this cast that these lives that these people had just led. Which, which could all of whom could have been characters in the film Casablanca. Exactly. That's precisely hmm. what I think really gives the film its texture. I think yeah. with, without all of those people who really experienced it yeah. firsthand, it just wouldn't have that kind of pattern of, of authenticity, yeah. which a an otherwise Hollywood confected studio picture, you know, couldn't possibly have. It just it, it wouldn't be possible. So we have all these refugees, many or most of them Jewish, uh, playing refugees essentially. There the. The script does not mention Jews, right? Uh, I mean, a concentration camp 
is mentioned, but Correct. not – and, you know, the extermination of the Jews had begun, a, I don't know, as this film was being made, essentially. Um, was was dealing with the Jewish question or not a, a, a question that the screenwriters in the studio wrestled with? I don't think it ever even came up that they would be able to address it head on. This was 1942, after all. yeah. Almost no movies were talking about this. Um, but Jack and Harry Warner, who run Warner Brothers, are mm, Jewish and anti-fascist yeah. uh, activists before that was really the yeah. consensus. No, they were, they were absolutely on the vanguard of Hollywood in terms of, of responding to the Nazis. I mean, they pulled out of Germany in, I think, 1934, um, way before any other wow. studio did. Um, all, all of the other studios continued to do business with Germany because they didn't want to give up that profit source, but the Warners just wouldn't do it. So it's one thing in 34. That's that's brave and amazing and, 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 and putting your money where your mouth is. But so then 39, the, the war starts. What about that two years between the war starting but us not in it? Were studios still like distributing uh, pictures <laughs> into, into Nazi Germany? It was definitely something that a lot of the studios held on. I mean, even studios, you know, run by Jews like MGM. Um, Louis B. Mayer was a European Jew, but um, it, it was just so difficult to to cut off that source of, of huh. funds. And, and, um, and, you know, a lot of these studios also were, you know, kind of massaging the content of their movies so that they would continue to play well right. in Europe and in, and in places where, you know, the – the hard line against fascism was not so hard. So it's like it's it's. I guess it's like the way Google and Apple sort of moder- modify things for China yeah. today, right? And in the end, there's an interesting kind of uh, corollary to that too, in terms of the po- immediate post-war period when when it took time for Casablanca to be shown in in the Federal Republic of Germany, West Germany, and it was heavily edited. All references to Nazis were removed really? from the film. Yeah, and and Victor Laszlo then was no longer <laughs> the movie a Czech resistant. Twelve minutes, yeah. <laughs> right? <No. laughs> and. I, you know, I, I discovered this film in the 1970s and, and of course, because 19-year-olds think everything is about them and you figure, oh, we, we must have just all rediscovered this. But was – between the 40s and the late 60s, early 70s, w- was this a, a cinematic cult? Thing? I mean, one thing I've actually been meaning to mention is um, the discovery of this film and, and other films um, that did not make it to France during the war by the French film critics of the 50s, who then, then a lot of them became the French New Wave filmmakers, you know? So you have like Truffaut and Godard right. and Chabrol. Um, and, you know, obviously like Bogart in Casablanca and in other films became this sort of key icon that's brought into Godard's Breathless. And, right, um, right, you know, right. it's the writing about these these movies that were just getting to Paris in, you know, or the early 1950s, mid-1950s that end up influencing this right. next revolution of cinema. Um, I wonder um, how it will resonate uh, these days. We, as international refugees, are more of a th- an issue for the world than they have been since the 1940s. Um, as people who don't like Donald Trump often think of themselves and hashtag themselves as resistance. Uh, hmm. Are people going to look at this in a, in a way they wouldn't have 10 or 20 or 30 years ago? I think that in the current political climate, Casablanca has even more to say and has even, you know, a stronger resonance than perhaps it would have had things gone differently in our last election here. Um, but also in light of the refugee crisis, I think it does uh, continue to resonate in terms of the, the need 
to to stick our necks out right. uh, uh, and, and, and to to look after those who who are in peril, uh, fleeing oppression and persecution, and again on a scale that is really at this point pretty much analogous to that of the Second World War. Karina Longworth and Noah Eisenberg, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful being here. We'll always have Casablanca. We'll be available in bookstores on February 14th, and I'm sure available for pre-order right now. And a new season of You Must Remember This has just started. That's it for this hour of Studio 360. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our team includes... Kari Pitkin. Andrew Adam Newman. Louis Mitchell. Daniel Guimet. Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Tommy Bazarian. Zoe Saunders. Max Gibson. Sophie Caddo. Thanks this week as well to Natalie Jones. And we're also saying goodbye to Jenny Lawton. Jenny arrived at the show exactly 10 years ago when Studio 360 and she were both quite young. The last two years, she has been my beloved executive producer. It's a cliche, I know, to say co-workers are like family, but Jenny really has felt like the cheerful and incredibly well-organized smart kid sister that I never had. We already miss you, sis. I'm Kurt Anderson. Thank you very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, a romance with a big dose of realism. So when somebody calls me and says, you know, my husband left me last year and I just met this wonderful man. Our divorce has been final two weeks and I'm ready to get married again. I'm like, no, no, don't do that. I'll talk with the radio host Delilah, queen of relationship advice and sappy love songs. That's next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.